This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a black Christian collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, the best-selling author, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, bro? I'm always kind of cringing at this next part. What? Wondering what's going to come out of Tyler's mouth next. Okay, but first we, we have to see. we have to greet our audience here. We're okay. at City of Refuge right. in Houston. Houston, make go. some noise. Yeah. <laughs> Houston in the building. <laughs> okay, so we've been doing this thing all year. Deep breath. <laughs> During this series where we've been asking each other three questions that the other person does not know to find out more about each other. Okay, so that's been at the end of every episode. Uh, I, I'll, I'll give you the first, the first shot. Okay, here. mine is easy. Okay, bet, right. bet. Our society is divided along many lines over many issues. Here's one, and you have to answer and take a side. Okay. The Office, Parks and Rec, or I'm going to add this one, Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Uh, <laughs> Bo is yes, swinging, like jumping out Bo of is seat. fighting you. <laughs> I mean, for me, it's the office, but but that's because I haven't seen Parks wow. and Rec. I just oh. haven't seen Parks and Rec. You've seen Brooklyn Nine Nine. I've so not seen. I've not seen Brooklyn Nine Nine. So you okay? I've seen right. like the opening scene of Brooklyn Nine Nine, and it was very funny. And then I, I don't know. Like I'm a very <laughs> introspective individual. Like I feel bad laughing at night when I'm able to watch shows. So I sit down and I'm like, I don't want to laugh before I go to sleep. Like I want to oh, cry. Wow. You know that's how I go to I want sleep. To <laughs> I want drama. You know, I need a documentary in my life. So, oh, my you know. gracious. Oh, my gracious. Okay. All right. For you, um, what scene in the movie always gives you goosebumps every time you watch it? Ah, that was easy. Um, in the Black Panther movie, when they first go back to Wakanda. Yo! <laughs> the music comes on. It swells. They go through the invisible barrier. And it's like, well, the first time Yahoo. I saw it, you were there. You were there. Man, I teared up. I was like, because it represented. I didn't see. I didn't see so you tear big. up. You were smiling. No, you didn't see I remember. Me tear up. Oh, it was oh, a thug tear on the corner. Of your eye, like. <laughs> you wouldn't go see it, homie. No. <laughs> yeah, that that scene is crazy because it was a moment, right? Like, there's all the build up to the movie coming yeah. out, right? It's is is black, black all throughout the film, and then you know, there's all this build up. What's it gonna look like? What's it gonna be like? Mm-hmm. And then they they get there, right? Yeah. And they even say on the film. We're home, and yeah, it was and more, it was more powerful than I expected. It, it was to be. so powerful because it 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 sort of taps into that longing in all of us, but especially Black people of a place that we can call home. Hmm. Yeah, so it was yeah. Okay, that was good. That was good. All right, my, my all right, second you, question. You, you, you. Yeah, yeah. Um, what's the most I can't believe I just said that thing you've said to your oh. kids so far? Wait, said to my what? To your kids? Oh man, to my kids. Oh, uh, I can't believe I did the I I thing. You know, I do the I I thing. You know, the I I thing. It's a black parenting staple. <laughs> Whenever you do your kids get ready to put something in their mouth, you I, 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 I. <laughs> <laughs> And it's the same every single time. It's like a rising I, 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 I. Like, I, <laughs> and she always throw it down and run away. Like, I wish you could see how she runs because it's so mischievous. You're like... <laughs> 
<laughs> and she's like laughing and, and she'll run. And what she does now, she closes doors. So wherever's the nearest door, she'll <laughs> run and she'll like slam the door. <laughs> and she'll and then uh, like after a minute, she'll like open the door and peek out. <laughs> Is it okay now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, kids, man. Oh my goodness. Um yeah, let's talk about this. You can only choose one to listen to for the rest of your life. <laughs> only choose one in this out of these four options. Uh, Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, Fannie Lou Hamer, Malcolm X. Ooh, gosh. Um, Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, Fannie Lou Hamer, Malcolm X. All of them got to go. You can only choose one. I hate even that question. Just, just all of them got to go. Um, <laughs> like, where they going? Hurts. Where they it going? <laughs> uh, I'm wearing an Ida B. Wells pin, yes, by are. the way. But I would choose, because of what I need, Malcolm X. Hmm. Because I've been so steeped in this sort of white centric Christianity and somebody listen like I knew it, I knew it. I need somebody <laughs> who's like, nah, you black, and that's that's okay. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll take it. I'll I take need it. that. All right, for you. Okay, that was. A, oh, what was the um, what was the worst thing you ever got in trouble at school for? Uh, the worst thing I ever got in trouble at school for. Can I say this? <laughs> I was hoping it'd be something you had to ask yourself. So yeah, you gotta say it. Oh man. <laughs> it's a long time ago. You know, people change. Nah, man. Y'all out here. Y'all out here. <laughs> Give me him Look, I gotta that, I gotta make some things law? right. I gotta re- <laughs> I'm about to have an alumni game. Like I gotta recognize. <laughs> Tyler done changed his oh, name. Used to man. be Aloysius. Yeah, yeah. Used He's to be underground right now. Used to be Darius. Uh, but our name is Tyler Burns now. Oh man, yeah. So I was on senior trip, right? I was on senior Bad trip, feeling good, feeling fine. Uh-huh. And I kissed my girlfriend, and that's the worst thing I ever ever got in trouble for. I'm dead serious. I kissed my girlfriend, and they got me in trouble. It was like a big saga. It was like gossip. This wasn't no little peck. Y'all were making out. No, 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 no. Yeah, we were. We were. <laughs> it's true. I can live in my truth. God done forgiving me. <laughs> um, okay, what's what's your um de-stressing activity? What's that de-stressing activity for you? So I watch comedy before bed. What are you watching right now that's that's helping you to sleep at night? As you laugh yourself into Brooklyn Dream State. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, okay. which you ain't seen. Uh, I, just, I can't do it, bro. I can't do it. The world is too serious. There's too much going on. Whatever, dude. Whatever. <laughs> can't do it. Got to do it. Yeah, laughter, true, true. laughter is, a, is, is, a, is a way of release, you know? It reminds you there's oh, happiness. Okay, can I ask you this as a kind of bonus question? Do you think Kevin Hart's funny? His early stuff, so his early stand-up, right? Because you were just talking about you were watching the documentary. Is he funny? The documentary, um, I like the documentary because it's very transparent. I think his early stuff, his early stand-up shows, the ones, Mm. the the big shows, he's got some good, all right, all right, all right, like that Yeah, because he's giving me kind of Shaq on the Celtics vibes right now. Shaq on the Celtics vibe? Like it's it's a wrap. It's a wrap now. Yeah, it's, it's a wrap. It's over. <laughs> I think he's got qu- quantity over quality at this point. Yeah. Well, I mean, his stuff in movies is still kind of funny, but I think his stand up, it's like, you know, he lost it. He lost the jumper. Uh, okay, so your questions. <laughs> <laughs> you wanted a yes. whole debate and episode on that. The okay. real Boyuk. Go ahead. Go look up 
as the as the caliber. Okay, hold up. We need oh, to research no, 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 the question. No, no, no. We, we can argue about the question. this. You think Brooklyn Nine Nine can't hold a calendar? Parks and Rec. Children, the children. Are you? I, 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 no, 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 no. <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay, so both said, all, how do we put? both said, how do we put Brooklyn Nine Nine on the same level as The Office and Parks and Rec? And you responded. It's As a ridiculous though. question. I reject it on its face. <laughs> so I reject that out of here. <laughs> it's the same type of comedy, right? It's 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 an ensemble See, cast. what comedy it's, does it's, to it's you. The, it makes you argue mood. and all this. <laughs> it's supposed to be happy. Y'all out here arguing. Um, the only thing that, that might not put it in that category is the show hasn't ended its run yet. So we don't know how it ends. But other than that, I mean, it's apples to apples. And we out here being oppressed <laughs> and y'all out here laughing. <laughs> <laughs> y'all taking your eye off the ball. Anybody else? Okay, questions. Next question. Next question. Okay, we were asked, who's our favorite comedian? Yeah. That is um, a great question. That is a great question. I don't know off the jump. Um, <laughs> yeah, you can do a top, do a top five. five. No, I, I like, think, I, I'll say I think, it. you know, someone who's extremely underrated is Bernie Mac. Like, I think oh, Bernie gosh. Mac is hilarious. Gosh. And the moments... Yeah, yeah, I think I think we don't talk enough about Bernie Mac in the, you know, top comedian conversation. I think we go to the more popular examples, but I think Bernie Mac is hilarious. Um and I wish he had, you know, more time to create yeah. more art, but uh yeah, I, I really like Bernie. If you're talking about my favorite comedian, I, I think it is Richard Pryor. No, I think it is Richard Pryor. That was the first one that came to mind, but because of his impact on comedy, right? Like, uh, and I'm not a comedian or expert on the history or anything like that. But well, if you it seems like you watch anybody. it every night, right? You know, <laughs> to go to sleep. Sitcoms, yeah, you know. <laughs> um, but but you talk about any particularly black comic and their influences. Richard Pryor is going to show up there somewhere, right? And that's this like you talked about uh, earlier. You know, which one would I listen to? I chose Malcolm X because he's so black centered in many ways. Richard Pryor did that to comedy, right? Because because if you look at his um, documentary I, I watched his documentary biography he started out sort of um doing this sort of accommodationist style right mm-hmm. he wanted to be the friendly negro that was safe for white audiences mm-hmm. and then he's like i was raised in a, a, a house of prostitution yeah, right yeah like this is not real this is not authentic to me I was addicted to drugs all this stuff so he started to be real and that's when his comedy started to actually yeah. shape the entire industry. From what, what documentary I is that? I need to. I need to watch that. I don't remember what it's called. Okay. But it's, I need to it's, look it's, that it's up. Watch it. yeah. That's a great question. Next. Mm-hmm. Okay. So if the problem is knowing where to start, analysis paralysis, um, give us one or two things that we should be doing. Right. Go one or two it. ways to start. Jump off. Yeah. So I, I would say that the the first thing. Um, that I think is really important for us is if you don't know, we were just talking a second ago about our cities. If you don't know the history of your city and if you don't know what's happening in your area, um, all the knowledge of what's happened nationally and globally will do you no good. So <laughs> you got to be familiar. You know, I had actually had I actually spent the day with a, a civil rights leader, a pastor um, who's been a family friend for years. And I spent the day with him and it was me and a couple other young pastors. And it was a wild you know, since we had been around each other and he started just peppering me with questions. Right. He's like, tell me about your area. And I was like, well, you've been here like Pensacola. You know, he's like, who's working with the census in Pensacola? And I'm like, Man, I don't know who's working with the census. I mean, what you mean? Like, who's that's where the money is. You got to. And, you know, he was like, really, like, like really getting after us. Basically, how many black doctors are there? How many black lawyers are there? 
Like how many black teachers are you raising up? How are you working with the incarcerated, the formerly incarcerated to make sure that the recidivism rate goes down? What are you doing? Y'all got to get on it, man. <laughs> like, I mean, he was really and it, and it lit a fire under me because it's like that's stuff that we may know. But what are we doing about these statistics and what are we doing about these facts in our community? So if you don't know about your local community, I, all this talk about the movement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what good is it, you know, mm-hmm. if you're not changing where you live, you're not changing the neighborhood, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm big on that local stuff. Yeah. Uh, uh, me as well. Um, go to a city council meeting and see what they're talking about, right? Um, because they're <laughs> see going what to they talking about. See what they're talking about out there. I'm saying, see what y'all talking about, man. <laughs> <laughs> what y'all be knowing I'll be here. Um, <laughs> Are you silly? <laughs> It'll lead you down so many paths, right? Because on any given agenda, there's going to be three, four, five, or six different justice issues, whether that's taxation or zoning or, um, you know, whether they can have a certain event. All of these things affect particular populations differently, right? And so being part of that conversation is is really important. And I often say voting, but not just because what happens when you cast your ballot on that particular day. It's becoming an informed voter leads you into justice issues, right? Mm-hmm. So if you're looking at a candidate's platform, and this could be for city council, district attorney is a really important race that that, that we need to be voting oh, yeah. in. Goodness. Um, of course, national politics, when you look at what folks are standing for then you're going to have you're going to be forced to think well where do i stand on this issue how does it affect people who have the least sort of social or financial power and then what am i going to do about it yeah i'll add one thing to that volunteer at a local school be a mentor at a local school it's changed my life it's changed my life you walk in you see certain things that you wouldn't have expected um, and you see you you encounter stories that you wouldn't have ever believed. And just in the in the conversations about music or about movies or whatever, um, you know, you really get to to see the state of where young people are in your city. So, yeah. All right. Next. Yeah. So the question is, um, since we're in an election year, we're talking about the diversity of candidates that are presented to us. Um, he actually mentioned that someone did a comparison to the final Republican field versus the final Democratic field and how the Republican field from 2016 is more diverse than the current options that we have. So, um, you know, what do you think about the diversity of candidates that we are offered and given? My goodness gracious. So, yes, um, we had a massively large field in the Democratic primary, at one point over two dozen candidates. <laughs> we was um, all doing sorry to this man. I don't know. <laughs> they ready for bread. Who? <laughs> yes. I've never seen this person in my life. <laughs> but part of what came with John that Williams, was, uh, <laughs> Eric Swalwell. Diversity. I'm like, who is this? I'm sorry. Um, how did they? How did they do it? How do you make the decision? Yo, I'm running for president. You got people around you that's I feel like that's like a serious thing. (laughs) No, man, you can do it. You can really do it. And I get the point. (laughs) Like, I just want to know the conversation. I just need somebody to come out. since Trump got elected, people are like, why not me? That's true, though. (laughs) Clearly, anybody can get up there. So, okay. So, so one thing we got to talk about is the, 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 the invisibility of Andrew Yang. 
as an Asian American, right? Like, sure. like literally left out of pictures on the media, even though he's maintained, he, he's stayed in it a lot longer than candidates with more name recognition, more visibility, et cetera. Um, but yeah, we also... His blue cap is in the car. What's that? I'm messing with you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we've also got folks like Cory Booker and Kamala Harris who, who both dropped out, and it goes back to something we were talking about in another episode, uh, as a threat to the movement, which is money. So sure. they listed a few reasons, right? They never sort of, in, in pollsters' minds, reached their potential in terms of support. But among the reasons uh, that they cited was a lack of money to continue the campaign. Um, and we have we have a couple billionaires in the Democratic primary who are financing themselves <laughs> to run and outspending people who are getting support from <sighs> tens of thousands of people, right? So, so the way money works, right, is a huge thing. Um, but also the idea of who... Who is qualified for leadership? There's there's so many double standards, right? Um, Amy Klobuchar was a prosecutor. So was Kamala Harris. But whose prosecutorial record keeps getting prosecuted, right? Mm. Like, <clears throat> you know, we're always holding on. We're always, good, even black people. That's good, okay, bro. and here's my last one. Uh-oh, that's really good, bro. Black people are that's extremely really pragmatic voters. Yeah. Obama won. But he's the one, right? Like, we can't forget Shirley Chisholm. We can't forget uh, Jesse Jackson, yeah. right? There have been others who have run. He's the only one who won in a very different sort of landscape, right? He's one, running against one major other primary candidate in, in um, uh, Hillary Clinton. And then um, it's just a very different field, pre-Trump, all that stuff. And then I think when you look at folks people of color, I wonder if voters of color really believe they can win. And we don't want to waste our vote. So we go, okay, Biden, he's black adjacent because he was Biden, he was Obama's VP, right? Uh, you know, and if you that look at shooting. his support, <laughs> the polls just came Quick out, Quick draw man. tomorrow. Boom, 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 boom. So what's going to be really interesting is he holds Off. support among black voters 35 and up. Sure. So older millennials and then boomers and all that. Um, 35 and under, the highest support goes to Bernie Sanders. So this is going to be really interesting as the early primaries play out in different states. Um, if there's any shakeup where Biden seems not as strong, I wonder where the black support's going to go. Yeah, I'll just say one thing. I think you've summarized it perfectly. Uh, everything I would say you've already said. I'm tired of turns. I'm tired of this idea that it's his turn. It's her turn. Mm. I'm really tired of that. You know, I, I I don't really care about any of that. You know, who's going to make the country a better place and not who's who's most connected to the right people. And, I, you know, I, that's exhausting to me. Mm. And I think that um, I would like for that to be explained a little bit better and demystified. And I would also like for there to be um, those who have come before to really really prop up and push a diverse coalition um, rather than the same standard five names that we get every year. Cause whoever doesn't win this year is probably going to run again in 20, you know, maybe if, if we've got some septuagenarians you know? in here. Yeah. So we'll see. What'd you just say? 
<laughs> we've got several folks in their 70s yeah. right now who may not be running How again. How you going to drop set to a generic? <laughs> <laughs> what is in that coffee? <laughs> Who's next? Goodness gracious, I'm sick of you. Well, hey, family, this is Tyler. We're just taking a break from today's episode to tell you about an exciting offer for you, our listeners. If you're like me, as much as I try not to, the first thing I do when I wake up is I am so tempted to look at my phone. If you're like me, honest enough to admit it, then we want you to try this. Instead of checking social media, open the Abide app. Start your day in the spirit and peace of Christ. Abide is the number one Christian meditation app. Abide users report less stress, lower levels of anxiety and depression, and also better sleep. You can start your day off with Abide's daily meditations that are based on biblical scripture. These audio meditations will center you and draw you closer to Christ. You can get started right now with 25% off of a premium subscription by downloading the Abide app at abide.co forward slash PTM. You'll get additional stories, meditations, premium music, soothing sounds, and more. That's A-B-I-D-E dot C-O forward slash P-T-M to download the Abide app and get 25% off your premium subscription. This episode is brought to you in part by Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. Pittsburgh Theological Seminary students are grounded in faith and formed in community. PTS students are preparing for ministry with Master of Divinity, Master of Arts, Doctor of Ministry, and Certificate Programs. Begin your Master's or Certificate Program in person or online. Financial aid is available. Visit pts.edu admit. Can we speak to the role of the multi-ethnic church, multicultural church in the fight for racial justice? My, my, my. Yeah. So uh, my one of the things we were talking about uh, the past few days is um, we started this impromptu conversation when we got here about my my history within the church and kind of how that intersects. And so how I grew up in a, a multi-ethnic like mega church uh, that my father was a pastor of and um you know, I think the perception of what multiculturalism was back then is totally different. Now there's like a multi-ethnic church movement. And there was just some recent studies that came mm-hmm. out about the the role of multi-ethnic churches. Um, I think that every church um, that is a part of the kingdom has a role in racial justice. Um, I think that it's important for us to um, dive into the different contours of what makes a multi-ethnic church and the different types of multi-ethnic churches. I think that's a a big thing for us to consider. Um, I think it is, it can be beautiful. Mm -hmm. Um, It can be a harrowing place for black women Mm -hmm. um, and it can be a harrowing place for women of color in general. And so I think what is the power structure? Where's the money coming from? What is the overall goal of the church? And I think there's a theology question as well. um, And, and what, I think there are different multi types of multi-ethnic churches and different denominations and the- theological perspectives. Um, but I think it's important. Um, I- I'm wondering if it's a phase. Hmm. I'm wondering if it's a phase. I hope not, but I'm wondering if it's a phase, if it's the response. This will work. 
and um, I, I think it, it can. Yeah. Or, but I, I don't think there's any silver bullet. Right. I don't think there's any one church that is supposed to carry that that banner. It's too the weight's too heavy. Right. I think um, multi ethnic churches can be very affirming for uh, particular kinds of folks sure. in particular situations. So if you're in an interracial marriage, transracial Absolutely. adoption situation, um, you know, if if you yourself are a mixed race person. Uh, these places can be really affirming um, because they're a mix of people like you feel like yourself or your family is a mix of people racially and ethnically. I think there are problems, um, and the caveat is not all multi-ethnic churches are the same by any means. Oh, or have yeah, the same I mean, philosophy. It's not a monolith, right? yeah. Um, so, so one problem is if we think – that the main issue of racism is is segregation, people living and moving in different spheres, then the solution becomes desegregation or integration, right? And that's only part of it is the problem. So I think it I think sure. I think it can be a problem sure. when folks think like this is the work of racial justice, getting everybody who's different in the same room. Mm. Now that's not bad. Right. No, it's a good thing. Yeah. But the other issue is we can work so hard to sort of be multi-ethnic as congregations that 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 becomes the thing. Mm -hmm. And there's there's little beyond that uh, in terms of mm. not even just ministry to the community, but success is really or effectiveness or health is really the main barometer is how diverse are we and other factors. Yeah. What's our spiritual maturity? Yeah. Yeah. What's our presence in the community? How healthy are our marriages? Those kinds of things yeah. don't get as much airtime. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. And I wonder, you know, what's the future of the multi-ethnic church movement? Because as the nation becomes more diverse, as generations are being born into a desegregated society where it's more natural to sort of mix with people, I wonder if... Um, I, I wonder if we're getting to a point where people know the right things to say, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and you can have some racial and ethnic diversity simply Yikes. because of demographics. And then what's going to be the next challenge, right? Because, okay, we've got people here simply because there's all kinds of people around. And we're not like in, in this generation and the yeah. one before working to say, hey, let's get together because we've been separates for so long. Then I just wonder what the next yeah. challenge is going to be. And class plays into that as well, Big too. Big time, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, next. That's a that was great really question. Good. Yeah, great question. Yeah, so the question is, um, when it comes to decolonizing our theology, what's the maintenance work that we're doing um, to maintain that perspective? And you mentioned you, um, especially yeah. as really to reform theology and, and all that. So I, I would love to hear from you on that. <laughs> I keep coming back to history. Um, that was one of the main catalysts for my decolonization because all these people I'm learning about in seminary uh, you know, the, the, the ones we always mentioned, George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, uh, but even other folks like, like Billy Graham and, and folks in his orbit. Very problematic, racially speaking, right? And so that, that sort of disabuses you of any notion that these people should be up on a pedestal. I think it's very dangerous to put anyone but Jesus on a pedestal. Absolutely. Um, Amen. but that's really brought home to me by studying history. Um, and then I listened to, 
black, black voices, right? And they may not even be Christian, but they are very steeped in segments of black culture, black aesthetics. Um, so, you know, folks like like anyone would know, like ta Coates is just mm-hmm. a student of black culture, mm-hmm. as well as literature, to put it in writing, right? Folks like James Baldwin, we talked about um, Imani Perry's book, Breathe, A Letter to Her Sons. Um, folks I follow on Twitter, uh, listening to black women has done a lot mm-hmm. to decolonize, yeah. especially around this sort of multi-ethnic thing, because one thing we've mentioned before is like, you know, for black men who want to toe a certain line, we can get amped up in these spaces. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, sure. black women, yeah. there's almost no space for them. Absolutely. Um, so listen to the Ladies of Truth's Table this, uh, has been hugely educational for me. So um, reading Malcolm X, oh my gosh. Like reading the people who they told us not to read. James Cone. <laughs> sure. Right. Sure. Like, uh, <laughs> Should I know? read this? No? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a long uh, list. If you start disruptor. going through it, learning from the people yeah. they told us not to learn from. Uh, but you're right. The, the the word you used was maintenance, and that that's a that's a vital aspect because it takes a sort of constant awareness and working through it. And there's always parts of my theology or my thinking yeah. or my doing that I think need to be decolonized. Yeah, to add to that, I think we should reframe in our minds who are the trusted voices. That's good. Yep. And so when I when I am preparing for a sermon, come on. I'm I'm going to do I'm going to probably get four pages in the Google search because I want to hear a person of color or a woman <laughs> preach that right. text. Right. And I think that's really important for me personally because I have I have my my default go to explanation of what the text should say, and then there are the the voices at the top, and all the commentary. Let's say you know Nehemiah, all the Nehemiah commentaries are people in a certain demographic, right? Yeah. But I want to actually push further and actually carve out more time to make sure that I'm reframing who are trusted voices and who are the people that I'm listening to to shape my view of the text. Um, I think. If you're going to say you're going to listen to people from the margins, that has to have direct connection to your everyday praxis and ministry. And so I, I want to make sure that I'm reading people who are out of print. Reading the people who their books are really hard to find. Like Those books are almost impossible to find. I mean, you know, you think you're, yeah, I talked about it on the Cultural Artifacts episode, William A. Jones Jr. or uh, Kane Hope Felder or J.D. Otis Roberts or the people that you actually have to construct. And there are actual docs in my computer of trusted scholars on this black. (laughs) (laughs) 15 names. And every time I hear another one, I'm adding a name, I'm adding a name, I'm adding a name because I think... One of the things that will hamper a movement as we talk about decolonization is laziness. And so it's just so much easier. There's so many more white theologians and white voices, especially in reform circles. There's just so many more people to choose from. Mm-hmm. So I can just easily go up and Google it. And then I'm, oh, no, I'm, I'm, <laughs> it's Friday. Sunday's coming. You know, I'm not going to throw out a name, but I'm just saying. And it's not bad. It's just. Well, how is that decolonizing my mind? And then what's the end goal of decolonization? Is it just to say I listen to black people or people Mm. of color? Mm. Or is it to reframe how I see God? 
Is it to reframe how I see God's work in the earth? Yeah. That's the, what's the goal of it? Right. Is it to, yay, you did it. (laughs) It's not checking a box. It's because this is nourishing for my soul. And it shows me something about God that years of education did not show me. They hid it from me. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I think that's, I mean, you got to put in the time, you got to put in the effort, but I think it really starts in small ways, like making sure you're constantly reading something or listening to something from a person of color, particularly a voice that probably wouldn't, I'll give you, I'll give you one thing. And I know it's so dangerous to, um, it's so dangerous to recommend a podcast on a podcast. <laughs> I'm sorry, Bo. <laughs> but um, there is a podcast from a, a black seminary, the Samuel DeWitt Proctor School of mm-hmm, Theology. Mm-hmm. It's called Theological Thinking. And it just came out. Those are the types of podcasts you need to listen to. So there's only one episode out. It's an interview with John W. Kinney and Gregory mm. Howard. Mm. And these are voices that you would know. I mean, people like John W. Kinney, like, yeah. you know, um, really, really important. And then now, based upon the proliferation of technology and how churches are getting their social media together, um, you can listen to some pretty amazing sermons yeah throughout the week from people like Dr. John Faison or Judy Fentress Williams or, or pick your, yeah. you know, and pick two, your person. two more things I'll say. One of the things we haven't mentioned in decolonizing our theology is, is attending black churches or what church you attend, right? Sure, sure. So, so, so seeing this in action, in worship, in discipleship, in the weekly rhythms of a congregation, it will give you a very different experience from the liturgy to the music to the content to the illustrations and the preaching to uh, you know the phraseology people yeah. use. The other thing I'll say is um, you mentioned you know who what sources are we trusting, but also whose approval are we trying to get? <laughs> right, sure, right, sure. So a lot <laughs> of it point, decolonizing yeah. is saying I used to think and speak and act this way so that this group of people would give me that stamp of approval. And so what does it look like? What does my theologizing look like if I'm not concerned about what they think, mm-hmm. right? If I'm preaching for an audience of one or discipling or evangelizing or reading or writing for an audience of one makes a huge difference. Of course. And that's yeah. changed a lot of my style to say, you know what? What you know, whatever particular white evangelical group or outlet or individual thinks of what I'm doing, it's not all that important that I thought it was. So, you know? to, and to that point, I guess the final thing I would say is if you want to address decolonizing your theology, your mind, your sources, you got to address your self-hate. You got to address if there is any vestiges of trauma triggers self-hate. We talked a, a little bit about this this season, but addressing the self-hate is a big big thing yeah. you know why why do i look at certain pastors with suspicion why do i look at certain people and 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 really critical and then other people i'm like wow so rich you know <laughs> you know so deep oh man so thoughtful and why do i and and how was i taught and this varies from person to person right but how was i taught to view my own culture more critically than i should I think we have time for one or two more. One or two more. Go ahead. Yeah. So the question is, as we decolonize our theology, how has um, God been reframed? And what are some of the most impactful ways for us where God has been reframed in that perspective? Um, Jamar? Um, You're the seminarian, man. You know what I'm saying? You're the historian. (laughs) We've had conversations about this in relation to black theology and black liberation theology and the critiques coming from 
many people from a European or white theological context. What I think I've come to understand through the discipleship of other people who understand it better than I is um, black theology and 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 really communities of color or marginalized communities emphasize God's eminence in light of his transcendence. Yes, yes, come on. Right? Come on. So it's the idea that God is for the poor, the oppressed, the downtrodden, and that he embodies and incarnates himself in Jesus Christ as that, right? A poor carpenter from Nazareth, where can anything good come out of there, right? Who has to be born, you know, in a cave, essentially, uh, who can identify with us in our sufferings. And so for an oppressed people, we've got to have a God who understands what we're going through. Whereas in a different culture and a different context where survival isn't the daily task, right? You can you can sort of emphasize God's transcendence, God's otherness. Both are true. Um, but there's an emphasis where 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 the oppressed have to be able to understand that Jesus is black, mm. if hmm. you will. Hmm. that there's a connection between the cross and the lynching hmm. tree, right? Hmm. Um, so those kinds of th- – that's one yeah. aspect of decolonization that I've come to realize. Yeah, so I think for me it's probably a recovery and a reclaiming of um, my charisma. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> the charismatic come gifts, uh, which is my pedigree, which is where I come from. And so it's just a reframing of that for me um, and a a reintroduction to what that looks like as far as thinking through – um, ways in which I was taught that any sort of emotional expression was anti-God and anti-Orthodox, hmm. that emotion is bad, mm. you know, that my body is bad, um, that my feelings are, are evil intrinsically. So I, I would always self-edit. So I would never be able to, if someone was asking me how I was doing, I would never be able to say how I was actually doing or I'd never be able to fully enter into, I, I'll, I'll be honest, we had <laughs> last week, um, before I preached, the choir was going in, right? And, um, and you know how when they close and then they 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 finish the song, but then people still singing yeah. and they still clapping. Yeah. And so I'm walking up to the stage <laughs> and I'm like, and so, you know, I always do this, you know, and I always give them that signal like, yeah, keep it going. Do your thing. Do your thing. And they just went off. And so the person who was leading worship, she was like singing at me and like doing this. And at first I didn't know what she was doing. I was like, and I was like, <laughs> so low. And so someone ran around the church and, um, and they were dancing and, and all I could think about was, okay, so the sermon, point one, point one, point one. And it was like, man, it's, it's okay to express emotion it's okay to shout it's okay to dance it's okay to use your body in praise that's just something i i yeah. always hated yeah and you know we talked about it a couple of episodes ago but I, mean, I hated my body growing up mm-hmm. and so i think my expression the way in which i viewed um how god is working in my body and the way in which is acceptable expression to him the undignified nature of praise at times. Yeah. Uh, that's just deep in my pedigree. And that's always something I said, man, I don't know why they don't take all that. You know, and I know that's not everybody's context. I'm just saying, that's why I always thought I was like, man, I don't take all that, man. I don't know what y'all doing. Mm-hmm. And then, but 
you know, John Faison was really helpful. You know, what sounds like what sounds like celebration can often be grief or it can yeah. often be a plea yeah. for sanity yeah. or often be a cry to God to to save and to help. And the permission that I feel now to do that in ways that I didn't before. Yeah. Um that that's not disruptive to God. It's just disruptive to the people around me. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So I think it dovetails with one other point I'll make is that decolonizing my theology has taught me about courage. So I think part of what you're saying is sort of the fear of if I raise my hands, if I shout, if I move, what are the people around me going to think? And particularly, what are these folks who I'm attributing theological authority to going to think? And I can remember being in seminary and preparing sermons for the preaching class was the most nerve-wracking thing, right? Because you're doing it for your peers, you're doing it for a grade, all that stuff, but you're also, I was in a context where if you didn't check every single theological box in that sermon and didn't get, you know, if you wiggled a little bit, they were going to get you. Um, And so (laughs) decolonizing my theology and learning about people who have done that or or have lived that. (laughs) Of course. It just gives you a boldness, right? Yeah. Like, um, I just remember feeling tight. Yeah. Tight, right? Like like you're in a china shop and bound, you don't want to... Bound, perhaps. Bound. <laughs> shackled, even. Um, and what, what freedom looks like, and I don't know fully yet, but learning what freedom looks like being, it's God's approval that matters, yeah, and it's yeah, God's man, approval on. that you've got in Christ. I love it. So say what you got to say. I love it. Dress how you need to dress. Mm-hmm. Serve who you need to serve. Um, and that's I good, think man. that's I actually it. contagious, man. When we went to um, South Africa. Uh, we'll be going in over there. <laughs> apartheid we'll be going is going in. It's only 25 years ago. Yeah. Yeah. So they're very much still living in the shadow of institutionalized segregation, right? Yeah. Legal segregation. Helpful. And in many ways, this is what Black South Africans said to us. They're looking at the U.S. to see how it went, right? You're like, because 1954 is longer ago than 1994. Not what to do. They're looking. They're looking to see how it went. I saw y'all going back. <laughs> it's like, okay, first black president. Yeah. Oh, wait, what? Right. They're, what they're, they're just there? following the trajectory uh, and saying, okay, what yeah, happened also. over here and how can we you know, improve on that, right? But the one thing that we often heard was, you guys are so bold. Like, you speak so freely about these racial issues. And I was like, wow, because obviously we know yeah. we're, we're still learning and leaning into it, but there are other contexts True. that are even more oppressive. Um, and, so, wow. and so I say that because when we start to live in our God-ordained freedom, then we, we liberate others. We give others permission to have a voice, too. So that's one of the things I'm learning. So good. One more? Or we're, or we're out? Yeah, go ahead, man. Man, whew. man, 
repeat that. Yeah, I don't know if I can repeat it with the right. That was wow. That's so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, the question on the table is Issa Rae a couple years back said I'm rooting for everybody black at the award show. And uh, people responded a certain way to that. And the succinct response was, it's not that we hate y'all, it's that we love us. Um, he was mentioning that as he was trying to grow in decolonization, that it's actually the opposite that happened. They grew in resentment. So mm-hmm. what does it look like for us to, to decolonize but also still love our oppressors? Mm. Part- wow, man. Yeah, man. Wow. That's the one we're going to end on? Okay. Um, wow. No, that's good. Nah. You had to let that one percolate. Yeah, I got to yeah. let that one, that one had to marinate. Um, so one of the things that's been part of my journey, and other feel free to disagree, but like, I think it is perfectly justified, given the history of this nation and indeed worldwide, for people of color to not easily extend trust. To white people. Mm. Mm. I know that sounds harsh to some people. Mm. But when you look at what we've been through and are still going through, if I don't know you, why would I trust you? Mm. And, And the reality is most of us have experiences of having trusted people across racial lines and been burned, right? And and so there's a bitterness that can come in there that I think we need to be on guard for. But there's also the wisdom from experience that you just can't let anybody in. You can't let everybody in. Right. And I don't think, I don't think that's not Christian. Right. I think it's, I think it's wisdom. It would be foolish given what we've, what we know and what we've been through to say, Oh, it's all good. You know, we're supposed to love everybody. Love doesn't mean that you let people hurt you. Right. Yeah. So I think, a certain amount of guardedness yeah. is warranted, right? Like if you, if you got to earn my trust, hmm. you got to earn my trust. You don't have to earn my love per se, right? Like I, I need to treat you with dignity and respect, You're my neighbor. period, yeah. right? But that doesn't mean I need to go to the coffee with you and bear my soul about my racial yeah. experiences. Right. That doesn't mean I need to go to the church with you. That's really not doing anything significant to open up space for people who are different. Mm. Um, you know what I'm saying? You got yeah. that look like, I don't know if I agree. No, I'm just processing. Okay. I'm processing yeah. what you're saying. Um, here's what I'll say. I think that kind of ties into that. I think it, it depends a lot on the context of what relationships are creating resentment. Is it just generally all white people or, or, you know, generally people out in the, the Twitter sphere, whatever it may be, or is it actual relationships that you previously had that now you're redefining? I think your, your, the proximity of what the relationship you're talking about, um, perhaps it's a church relationship or perhaps it's, perhaps it's a personal relationship. Like I went through a lot of, um, and I'm still going through a lot of difficult adjustments in my personal life. So my wedding in 2015, it was like the United Nations. Like it was just a little bit of everybody in the wedding. And now I don't have the best relationship with everyone in that picture. Mm. Um, and so due to some of the things I've said, some of the ways I've, I've adjusted and, you know, the ways that people are on a different journey, there are different points of that journey. So I think I have a responsibility to a relationship that, is close in proximity to me to do everything in my power to push towards reconciliation. I think that's important for me. Now, if that, if that particular relationship is injuring to my soul, 
injuring to my heart, injuring to my mind, then we have had to say for for the betterment of me and you, we're we're not mixing right now. But we're gonna we're gonna step away and we're gonna come back and we'll see where we're at. You know, if the Lord wills. But I think a big part of that is being honest with your emotions. Hmm. being honest about your feelings and your emotions because what what I think we tend to do in the pursuit of reconciliation and love we lie <laughs> it ain't it's, it's all good it ain't <laughs> right once, once you get married you'll find out somebody says to you don't worry about it <laughs> no then, I'm, I'm worried about it because of how you, you just said, said don't that don't worry about it yes. you just said don't worry about uh uh-uh, uh no no no, uh-uh, no, no, no hold, hold up hold up right and so it, it's fine it's fine and we're lying saying peace peace when there is no peace exactly and i think yeah. that's dangerous but i think it is that's right. that's right i think it's still true to say that it is unbiblical to harbor hate bitterness resentment it inherently dehumanizes us it dehumanizes us mm-hmm. and i think there has to be an outlet and a place for us to be honest about where we're at to leave it there but also to to take an honest assessment about our circle of influence and where we're touching, where where we're interacting with these people to see if there's anything in our daily routine, weekly routine that's kind of building up that resentment. And, and it's unbiblical for us to hang on to that. We have to deal with that. So the question is, how are we going to be reconciled or move in conciliation if we're not honest about our emotions? You got to take work in that. You got to do work in that. So we can't just, that's why I say you got to address yourself hate because it's not just decolonizing from a mental, it's not all intellectual. Mm-mm. It's heart work too. Mm-hmm. It's spirit led work mm-hmm. too. So we need to get honest and we need to have those safe circles where we can say, I- I'm, I'm just going to say this and this is how I- I'm feeling and I'm going to be a hundred with you and I'm a rant and I might scream a little bit, but this is my safe place to do this because I need to say what's in my heart. And there's so much of, Christianity that tells us push that down. There's a time and a place. I'm not gonna do it in the pulpit. I'm not getting up in men. <laughs> but with my with my brother, uh, I, can we can we be can we be can we mm-hmm. take off? Mm-hmm. We take off. The, mm-hmm. We're not podcasters right now. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you how I'm really feeling? Mm-hmm. Can I tell you what's really going on in my life? Get you know, you got to get the clack with it. <laughs> That's when it's really real. <laughs> you tell you yes. what's going on. Got to be authentic. Let me this say, dude just right here, he just is. <laughs> but if you don't, if you're not honest with your emotions and your feelings, you're gonna lie to yourself and you're gonna lie to other people and think that's holy. It's not. No, it's not. And I'll say two more quick things. One, by way of illustration, um, when I became a teacher, uh that's when I moved down to the Delta. So this is very this is a culture shock for me coming from Midwest. It's very different. One thing I have in common is is I'm black, and the majority of the students are black. When white teachers would come in, a lot of them would be flabbergasted. Like, why aren't their students responding to me? Why are their parents so, quote-unquote, mean Mm. to me, right? Mm. And when I became a principal and would have to sort of coach teachers on it, understand you're coming in to a situation where the people here, the white people they know, have done a lot of things to hurt and betray them. So guess what, white person? You're going to have to work harder and be patient Mm -hmm. to earn and gain their trust Mm -hmm. because they have a lot of reasons not to trust you. And it's actually not personal, right? Because they don't know you, but they know what's happened and what's been happening. Mm -hmm. 
And so I say that because if you're white and you're trying to develop relationships across racial and ethnic lines, it can feel, I'm sure, very discouraging and unfair. Like, why? where's all this coming from? I didn't do a thing to you. But understand, you're benefiting from a system that is corporate and systemic. Right, right. And you didn't have to do anything personally in order to benefit from that system. And the flip side is it's been to my detriment. So how do I know you're not somebody who just sort of leans into that benefit sure, and sure, is going to take advantage? Sure. So that's one thing, right? Like there's there's patience. And because this system is so messed up, there's going to be burdens on people, yeah. oh, right? Sure. And then the second thing is um, with that tendency toward bitterness, which I get tempted a lot because – I read and study this mm-hmm. stuff throughout history and the things that have happened. And when you know names and dates and places, the heinous things mm-hmm. that hate has done uh, towards black people and other people of color, um, I think righteous anger is is a good and natural reaction, right? Being honest sure. with our emotions. Sure. Um, but at the same time, I maintain cross-cultural relationships. Hmm. I think people would be surprised at what my inner circle looks like of people I can really be honest yeah, with. Yeah, no. Um, sure. Of people who I go to church with. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They who be, they voted for. Oh, yeah. They'd be real surprised. Real surprised. <laughs> but that keeps me honest, right? Yes, and it's it local and it's not story I publicize or anything. But for anybody who's like from the outside looking in, like, you don't know the work that goes into mm-hmm. me loving people who are part of a group that historically has hated yes. me, right? Yes. But it's there, and it's real, and it keeps me honest, and it's not always easy, but I think it's necessary. Thank you guys so much. You have been so gracious. Give yourselves a hand. Yes. Great questions. Phenomenal questions. Uh, once again, thank you to City of Refuge. Thank you guys so much for letting us be here. Um, and we hope that this has encouraged you in some way, giving you strength to go on. And it wasn't a waste of your Friday night. <laughs> and um, yeah, continue to follow us. Pray for us. Um, leave a review on iTunes. Yeah, leave a review on iTunes. That's a great way to, to help us out. <laughs> I'm like, yo, I hope you guys' souls were nourished. <laughs> Jamar, Jamar's like, leave a review on iTunes. <laughs> <I'm> like, <laughs> No, but thank you guys. Uh, we wanted to do this not because we had just this big plan of having an event in January. We actually weren't planning on it. But anytime we get to hear stories and hear from listeners and just re- regular people being honest about where they're at and the questions um, and seeing your faces, it does something for us. Um, it encourages us. It builds us up. It spurs us on. It uh, means so much to us. Uh, we are still shocked. We talk about this all the time that people actually listen to the podcast. Yeah, like It's just a, it's, it's wild. It's wild to us, but it's something that it's we live trust. in and we want to make sure that um, we're serving you well. So thank you. Thank you for giving us that opportunity. This episode was brought to you in part by United We Pray. United We Pray is a podcast devoted to praying and thinking about racial strife. 
especially between Christians. Come join us in praying for the unity of God's people.